Hey, what's up, guys? I'm excited to bring one of my best friends on board here, uh, a real guy that's really dear to my heart. Uh, I met him in the scouting world. He is scouting for the Milwaukee Brewers now. Uh, Jeff Scholzen. Jeff, thanks for coming on board with us today. Thanks. Appreciate it, Chad. Absolutely. So Jeff and I, we're, we're part of the uh, scouts of Major League Baseball, hanging out at home right now. And we're, we're doing video reports, getting ready for the draft. And we're not going to dive too much into the draft. But I wanted to, Jeff, bring you on board today and discuss kind of your background, kind of where you've come from. You've had a lot of coaching experience. Uh, you've been a scout forever. And let's talk about, bring us to, to up to date on, or kind of really your background on how you started with coaching all the way up to where you are as a scout now. Okay. I guess we can start from the beginning without writing a book about it, but uh, that's something that everybody's pushed me to do one day. But I grew up and I still live in a real small town outside of St. George, Utah, Hurricane, Utah. I lived in St. George for about 15 years and moved back a year and a half ago, built a new home, basically just restarted our life a little bit from a family perspective, which we can get into a little bit later. But little tiny town of about 3,000 people when I grew up. It's probably about 20, 25,000 people now, one high school town. We didn't have any stoplights. It was all yield signs, four-way stops. It was basically Norman Rockwell kind of upbringing. You know, it was small town, you know, Mark Twain type stuff, made your own fun, uh, played Sandlot, Indian ball. You know, you practiced more than you played. You know, Little League was about 16 games over a two-month, three-month period. You know, you had a very short high school season of about 20 games. And then you played summer ball. You played American Legion. You didn't have the Connie Mack and travel ball and showcases that everybody does today. But, you know, it was one of those things where the love of the game was practicing the game. It was more or less the process of the game. Results were kind of secondary. That was the goal. But because you didn't play enough games, you had to worry more about the process and just having fun because nothing was being counted. You'd count it in your own mind, but when I was 12 years old, my dad set up a batting cage in our backyard. And we spent our summers, you know, living in that batting cage, turning the floodlights on, living in 100 to, you know, 110 degree heat, going in and watching WGN and, and TBS and watching Dale Murphy and, yeah. and you'd sit down for maybe three innings at a time and then you'd go right back out to the cage again, you get your fix. And you kind of just did whatever you wanted to do. You rode your bikes. You, you had a great upbringing. We had to mow lawns. You know, you had to have your lawns done by basically 10 o'clock in the morning on Saturdays. Didn't get to sleep in. Or the TV court basically got taken away and you couldn't watch the game of the week. So when I was nine years old, I was pretty advanced for a young kid. My dad ran the Little League program in Hurricane. And he thought it'd be a good idea because our uh, company business, our family business, sponsored a team. So he put me in a Little League game when I was nine years old. And, you know, today they have minors, coach pitch, major league, all that kind of stuff. But back then it was just t-ball at seven and eight years old and nine years old. So you played for three years and it was kind of monotonous. Mm. And you're ready to move terrible. to the next yeah, it was terrible. You just had to move to the next level and you were chomping at the bit to basically the first time you ever saw a live pitch in a game situation is once you got to Little League. And so my dad put me in at nine years old. Nine-year-olds weren't allowed to play. It was 10 through 12. The all-star teams were the 11 and 12-year-olds. I went into this game 
and drew a lot of flack from parents in the community. Uh, I threw really hard, three innings and struck all nine batters out. And so that came with a lot of challenges, bullying at school, you know, who do you think you are? You know, it was uh, really spearheaded a lot of confidence in me. I knew that I had the talent to play. I loved to play. But that first initial exposure kind of set a path for me that said, this is, this is kind of easy. You know, and I knew how tough the game was, but at that point in my life, the game was, was not hard. And I knew that I could go out and put up, you know, I hit 17 home runs when I was 12 years old. One time hit four home runs in a game. But then when I went into my 13-year-old age group, that was when you went to the big field. And you played Pony League or it was Senior Little League, that kind of thing. My eyes started to change and I didn't know it. And I really, my eyes started to adjust to, this is just how I see. And I didn't know what seeing clearly looked like. So I just thought that was my eyesight. And I got three base hits the entire summer when I was 13 years old. And so I thought I was not very good anymore. I thought that uh, this was a challenge that I was not going to be able to take head on. Luckily, we didn't have an all-star team when I was 13 years old. It was for the 14 and 15-year-olds. And I got my eyesight corrected. And I went out my 14-year-old age group year and went right back to basically just kind of having my way with the competition. But one of the things that really spearheaded, I guess, future successes, my path in the game, was a very critical day. It was the last day of tryouts when I was a freshman in high school. I was really worried, you know, internally, mentally. I was worried that I was going to be on the JV team. And I didn't want to play on the JV team. And I'd gone through that week of tryouts knowing that I was better than most of the players or even the seniors. But I had set myself up to say, you know what, I'm going to give it my best. I'm going to go out this just like I always have. I'm going to go out with the mindset to dominate, be the best player on the field, and just see what happens. But I was totally set up for being told by the coach, no, you're not going to play varsity. So the last day of tryouts, everybody you know, gets together in the dugout. Coach tells everybody, bus leaves tomorrow for this tournament in Mesquite, Nevada. And he says, Schultzen, he says, I need you to stick around. And I thought, here we go. This is where I get told that I'm on the JV team. And that's not what happened. He told me, he says, congratulations, you've made the varsity club. You're going to play center field and you're going to lead off tomorrow and you're not coming out of the lineup. So you can either hit 500 or 100, it's up to you. I ran with that and I felt like I belonged. Somebody told me that I belonged. It was now not just me feeling like I belonged. It was somebody validating my feelings and thoughts and beliefs. And I went out and I led the state in two-way that year in hitting as a freshman. And then I just kind of went through my high school life and continued to have a lot of success. We were very fortunate back then that we had a lot of good players at that level, at the two-way level. And we ended up having seven players in that classification play professional baseball. And I want to say there's only been maybe seven or eight in the last 30 years that have played professional baseball here from this area in all classes. Right. But we were just really lucky that back then there was a good group of kids from the middle of the state to the bottom of the state that all we did was play baseball. All we lived for 
was playing stickball, Indian ball, you know, just makeup games. Mm -hmm. And we lived for the game of the week on Saturday. We lived for the, you know, Monday night baseball. So we didn't have all the access that kids do today. So that was something that, you know, I had a lot of success, but at the point, how do I translate that and get to the college level? And I've told a lot of kids and spoke with a lot of high school teams about, especially our team here at Hurricane, was how do they do it? I mean, there was no reference point to look to other than Bruce Hurst, the local right. legend. Right. And he was the only person I knew that had played professional baseball from Southern Utah. So, you know, you had constant criticism, naysayers. I remember when I was in the seventh grade, I had a shop teacher who passed around a five by seven index card. And he wanted everybody to write down what they wanted to be in life five years out of high school. Well, everybody kind of knew what I always put. It was the same answer all the time. I want to be a professional baseball player. So we pass him to the front of the class. He goes through a few and he, he picks mine out of the crowd. And he says, we have somebody here who we need him to do it over again. It's, it's a pipe dream. It's not realistic. And I think we all know who that person is. You know, in today's world, that would get a teacher in trouble. But back then, it was a different life, a different time. You were kind of put on the spot a lot. Discipline was different than it was today compared to then. I just always had a chip on my shoulder. It was something that I believed in. I didn't care if anybody else didn't believe it. I believed it, and nobody was changing my mind. That was my focus. You know, I would lay my head down at night, and I'd say, what would it look like if my name was up on the high school marquee? saying, congratulations, Jeff Schultz and signs with X team. And that was my visualization. And those were my results. Those were my end products. Uh, batting average, you know, home runs, RBIs, all the traditional statistics was not my end goal. I, I was lucky that I grew up with a dad who, when we travel around and go to different baseball camps and I'd travel on the road with him doing sales or whatever, We'd always listen to books on tape, which are audio books and podcasts today, but we'd listen to books on tape about being mentally tough, how to strive for success, how to work for success, how to put in a plan for success. And one of the things that I did was I didn't always believe that I was going to be a good ball player or I was going to be a good ball player. It was, I am a good ball player. Right. I would always on the on deck circle I'd, kneel, I'd get stretched out, do my thing, and then kneel down on one knee, kind of say an internal prayer. Then I'd walk to the plate, and I always said, I am a good hitter inside. I'd say, I am a good hitter. So it wasn't about I was going to be or I could be. It was I am. And I took it from, I guess, to those who are spiritual, I took it from a, a standpoint of God is not going to be something he won't be something it's he is I am and so that's how I looked at it and regardless if I had failures or I struck out or popped up grounded out whatever made an error I just continued to say I am good I am good I am good and that carried me through my entire life when I was in high school I didn't know how to get to the next level I didn't know the process I didn't know anybody who knew how to get me to the next level as, as, as far as a support system. Didn't know that you could write colleges. Back then, there's no email, no taxes, no cell phones. How was I going to do this? 
a lot of things. So, yeah, it was just, and so I guess I did a lot of visualization. I would write on pieces of paper, mock articles about myself saying the New York Yankees signed Jeff Schultz into a 10 year contract, those kinds of things. And I just made up things and they were feel good things for me so that I could actually see things happening. So I really kind of just visualized on get a good pitch to hit, hit it hard. You can't control where the ball's going to go. I didn't really worry about results. It was more of if I have four at bats and I hit the ball hard two times, 50% of the time, chances are I'm going to have the results that I I'm looking for. And so it was just a matter of being realistic. I knew that there was probably a chance that my baseball career could end at high school. And I, I would say that I did stress. I, I had anxiety that I wouldn't be able to take this to the next level and live that dream because at that point in my life, I knew how to be a good ball player. I knew what went into being a good ball player. I knew I was a good ball player, but I didn't know how to take that to the next level. And so I was very fortunate that that same high school coach who gave me an opportunity to play every day as a freshman, he retired from coaching after my sophomore year. And he was writing letters for me, you know, it's to me, to colleges. And so I had him as a Spanish teacher and he'd bring those letters in from the front office and give them to me in Spanish class. He fed my baseball habit or love and passion for the game. He would bring me collegiate baseball news that he had a subscription to that all high school coaches had. He'd bring it to Spanish class and basically it became my subscription. I got to keep all those magazines and newspapers. One day he, he brought me a BYU letter, a Utah Valley letter, a few other colleges. He set up some opportunities for me to go watch college games in Southern Utah when schools would come down here and got me in touch with the colleges. And I was fortunate enough to start being recruited kind of quickly when I was a junior, but I didn't do so well in school. And I was blessed with a very high IQ. Uh, I could have been a 4.0 student. I just chose not to. Kids nowadays have the NCAA clearinghouse. They know what's expected. They know that grades are important. But back then, I was just going to do whatever I had to do to get by, to get out to 3 o'clock practice and play ball. And I had the mindset of I can hit the ball just as far, throw just as fast, and run just as fast without English, math, and science. And so that's what I did. And I didn't realize that I was hamstringing myself into limited opportunities. And so because of that, I had to go the junior college route. And so I went to Utah Valley back when it was a junior college, but it was an absolute blessing because the team that I ended up playing on had six or seven future professional baseball players on it. Both my roommates, Randy Willstead, who's a local high school coach in Southern Utah, Got to the AAA level with the Montreal Expos, one of the greatest hitters in BYU history. Blaine Millen, who was a starting catcher at BYU in Utah Valley. We we're all roommates. And we all dreamed that wouldn't it be cool if all three of us played professional baseball and we were roommates. Right. And so that kind of spearheaded us. I was very lucky to be around people that could help me, um, develop me. But I also had to put in the work myself. 
And so I always believed that luck finds the prepared, that if you're on time to practice, you do the little things, that you do the things that are necessary, not just to get by, but to be ahead of the curve, that once that first fastball comes in the strike zone, you're prepared and you put all the work into it, you put all the, the mind you know, work to it, that you're prepared and you don't have anxiety, you don't have stress. Yes, we all had butterflies. Yes, it was hard to eat lunch or breakfast the day of a game, but those things really helped me um, mentally that when I got to the game, I knew I was prepared, that whatever results happened were out of my control. Um, I wasn't a rah-rah guy. I was somebody who would basically take you through the center field fence if I had to break up a double play. But once I came back into the dugout, I would sit there calm, cool, and collected. And I basically just turned inward. And I thought about the previous at bat, what I need to do to make adjustments and change. But it was all a mental process. And I was a big visualization guy. I like to watch a lot of you know videos. I'd order videos out of the back of Boys Life magazine or Sports Illustrated. Did a lot of subliminal work. You know, I I got a my dad got a Rod Carew video for me when I was in high school, and it was hitting a ball to the opposite field, pulling a ball, hitting it up the middle, bunting down the third base line, and it would play the same clip over and over hundreds of times, to where it just got ingrained into your head almost like through osmosis. This is what it looks like. And so I would put myself on autopilot and go out and try to replicate those things physically, but it all started visually and mentally. And so those things kind of carried me, I want to say, a little bit past my ability, per se, that I maximized my ability as a player physically because I was lucky enough to be taught some of these things as a young kid and my parents taught me the value of hard work. And so I had to mow lawns. I had to work in the steel warehouse when I was in high school at my dad's company. It would let me be at the front counter air condition and get out of the 100 degree, 10 degree heat. So I had to do a lot of things that were not fun. I didn't want to do them. I just had to show up and either do a good job or you don't go do a good job. And so I felt like if I don't do a good job, I'm going to get yelled at. I'm going to get reprimanded. I might as well do a good job. And so when I do a good job, it just feed into the next good job. And it just became an ingrained habit that I learned the value of hard work, how to be mentally prepared and how to minimize some of the nervousness and anxiety. But then when I first, I guess I had three different occasions where I, I faced my first mental adversities. And it was making that transition to the college level. And I'd come in and I was kind of a decorated recruit who should have been at the four-year level. I was at a junior college and I was given the starting shortstop job. And I lost it halfway through my freshman year. And a lot of it was not my physical ability. It was putting stress and pressure on myself to try to perform up to others' expectations and not my own expectations, which were very high. But I let external things get in the way and then results became too problematic. I looked outward and I looked too much at numbers 
instead of the process that I'd gone through growing up to that point. And so my sophomore year, I asked to make a change and go to the outfield and play center field. It meant the world to me, took pressure off having to be in the dirt and making all the plays. And I was able to run and use my arm and relax. And I had a big year. It kind of spearheaded into three all-conference seasons from there to where I was able to play professional baseball. But everywhere along the way, I was I always faced adversity and I always had to overcome it. When I got to Eastern Oregon, my four-year school, I went in there with another outfielder. We were in the same conference in junior college the year before. I was the first team all-conference. He was second team. I thought, there's no competition here. This has been proven out a year ago. I'm the guy. And that was not the case. And so we were 10 games into the season. This other player was hitting about 300. I was hitting 180. I was not used to playing part-time. I was used to playing every day. And so 10 games into the season, we came back from a road trip and I was in and getting some ice on a hamstring and all the players come running down the hallway of the PE building and said that this player was emptying his locker and letting the coach have it. He quit the team and left Oregon and went back to Utah. Well, everybody had a gathering at my apartment and wanted everybody to talk him into staying. Well, my mindset was leave. <laughs> Please leave. <laughs> leave. We don't need you. You guys need me, not him. And the next day I, I'm walking through the halls, going to class, and the coach yells at me to come into his office. And he begs for me to convince that player to stay. And I said, we don't need him. You need me. And it was a confidence that I had basically, I wouldn't say mastered, but that I was, I'd learned enough over time that success breeds confidence, confidence breeds success. And I just told him, you don't need him. You need me. So the next double header we played, we were in Boise, Idaho, and I hit three home runs and three consecutive bats on three consecutive pitches. And after the game, even my coach said, you know, what a great day by Schultzen. I don't know if he could replicate that again. And I just spoke up and said, you play me every day? I'll replicate that. And it was more of, it could have came across as cocky, but it was, I was very sure and confident in my ability. I knew I was needed. I just needed to prove to others that I was needed from their standpoint. But then I got into professional baseball and the same thing happened again, making that adjustment. Um, I got there, I struggled, um, had flashes of success. It ended after one year, but at that point now it was, what am I going to do? Baseball's over. And I've been doing this since I was you know, five years old and now I'm 22, 23 years old. Where do I go from here? And that's when I got the bug to say, I don't want to work for a living. I want to continue to be involved in the game. I don't care if it doesn't pay a lot of money. I told my scouting directors over time, and they always asked me to repeat this in meetings at some point, but I, on one of those five by seven index cards, when I was in high school, I wrote down, 
that what I wanted to do five years out of high school is I wanted to major in recess and get paid to do it. And that's basically what I've been able to do to the age of 51 years old is major in recess and get paid to do it. But it all started out with visualizing something, seeing it happen, um, believing it could happen. It wasn't just a dream. It was a dream that I felt was a reality because I could actually see it happening. And so once things happened the way I wanted it to, then I was in a position to say, okay, that's been accomplished. I saw it happen. It wasn't a surprise. On to the next challenge. And so a lot of it, I think, comes from competing. I think if you compete hard, you love the game, you have passion, it breeds confidence, which eliminates a lot of anxiety and stress. But it's all about a belief system. And the one thing that I've always believed, or two things I've always believed, it can be taught, it can be learned, but I think all of us have some kind of self-confidence. It's just, do we feed into it or do we allow external circumstances to basically diminish it? And so process is what I looked at instead of results. I got really good at the process and I really enjoyed practice. I enjoyed taking batting practice. I enjoyed taking ground balls. Games were just a byproduct. I'd love to compete. I love to play between the lines. But what I actually missed once the game was over for me was not the games. It was actually the practice. Being able to walk out the door every day and know I could go to the ballpark for three hours, no results were going to be calculated. It was all about just accepting one challenge, conquering it, going to the next thing, and it was a process. That's awesome, man. It's, I, I've heard a lot there. You talk about visualization. What stood out to me there is you were imagining, you know, like you said, you were, you, you wrote out how the Yankees were going to draft you. They're giving you a $10 million or 10 year contract. Yeah. You know, so that's, I, I think I heard Kobe Bryant talk about how we, we don't imagine anymore. We, we just, we we're, we're so worried about the results of where we are at rather than the process and the process right. is, is the huge part of that is your preparation right and, and pre preparing for anything to get ready yeah. and we we focus at a younger age and that's a great example of teaching these young high school kids yeah. college kids of being able to focus on the process of what you do every single day right. not not my batting average not the result of that but what are you doing to improve every day so yeah. let's talk about so you, you at this point have your playing careers over. You have now become a coach. You're now a teacher, right? And so you right. know, you're, uh, um, so kind of walk us through your coaching experience and then let's tie that into um, how you became a scout. Okay. So I, I went back, I took about a six month break after pro ball. I didn't really, I kind of knew what I wanted to do, but it was kind of scattered all over the place. I didn't know the right avenue. I didn't know if I wanted to go back and try playing again, coaching again. I knew I wanted to finish my degree, but at that point I just decided I was going to work for six months, work for my dad and just kind of get away from the daily grind, switch it up a little bit. Passion never went away. 
when I was finishing my degree at Southern Utah University, I transferred all my credits from my four-year school in Oregon back home to get a teaching degree at Southern Utah. I was just about done with my degree. I had about a month left to graduation in May. We were right in the middle of the college baseball season. It was the first spring that I hadn't played anywhere. It was kind of unusual to see everybody else playing. And here I was sitting in a classroom. <laughs> and I had a professor who was the associate athletic director at the university. And she oversaw spring sports. And it was a methods class on how to teach physical education. And I took a test that day. And she asked me to go to her office when class was over and have a talk with her. Now, the first thing that comes in is negativity or thing of what did I do? Did I, you know, does she think I was cheating? You know, all those different things like, oh, worst case scenario. Yeah. So I go there, she shuts the door and she lets me know that the head coach was going to resign at the end of the college baseball season. And she didn't want it to, I guess, get out. It was more we want to let you know of this. We do have some plans of what we're going to do going forward with the program. And she asked me if I'd be interested in applying for the position. Now I was kind of floored because I'd number one, never been a coach. I just come off the playing field. Number two, I was extremely young. I had not been an assistant coach or a grad assistant or any of those things to climb the ladder. And so I said, yeah, sure. So I got pretty excited about it and thought, you know, gosh, you know, I could go off and be a high school coach and have on my resume that I was interviewed for a head coaching job at a D1 program. And that was kind of like a pipe dream, one in a million. And I applied, went through the summer. I started working in a boys program um, for troubled youth. And I get a phone call from the HR department at Southern Utah and they wanted to set up an appointment with me to be interviewed. Well, you know, I thought that's awesome. Just another step in the process to, to get to where I want to be in life. And I didn't know, I thought there was going to be 10, 15, 20 people being, you know, asked to interview. Little did I know there was only three that were being asked to interview. Okay. And so I go in there with a suit and tie on and I'm ready to conquer the world. I've got all my prepared answers. I'm ready to just sling it and act like I know what I'm doing, fake it till you make it kind of thing. About a month later, in August, before school started in September, I get a phone call and they offered me the head baseball job at Southern Utah University. I didn't care what the pay was. And I accepted right away, got around to, oh, by the way. No negotiating or anything? Yeah, no negotiating. <laughs> I told them, I said, I'll take it. And then I got around to saying, well, uh, how much does it pay? I was full-time with benefits, 401k, and the starting salary was $11,500. To me, I was, it, it didn't matter. This, is, this was fun and games. This was getting paid to major in recess. Yeah. And so just three months earlier, I'd walked down the aisle as a college graduate. Three months later, I'm being the teacher, the coach, the father figure, the psychologist for players that were only two, three years younger than me in some cases. So it started a four year run where I was the head coach up in Cedar city, Utah. And first game as a college baseball coach, I'm exchanging lineup cards with the legend Jim Brock at Packard stadium against Arizona state. It was the year that Jim passed away from cancer. It was his last college season. And uh, you're out there coaching third base in front of 7,000 people 
you're looking at future stars in the big leagues on the opposing side for Arizona State. And I looked at it as they were the New York Yankees and we were the Toledo Mudheads. Basically, we were not in a position to win. This was a building process. It was results were not going to matter. Results were going to be something down the road. We had to stick to a process. So it was a building situation where you had to have little victories all the time. Recruiting was tough, but I always had a lot of stories from that college, for that four years in college. But I think one of the coolest stories or two cool stories I had from coaching in college baseball was I knew I, I wasn't going to be at Southern Utah forever. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be, but it just wasn't realistic. The funding was not there. But I had two players that really had a direct – one of the two had a direct correlation to help me get into professional baseball again. The first one was Ryan Jensen, and he was a former big league starting pitcher for the San Francisco Giants. And Ryan was like top five in the league in rookie of the year balloting his first year with the Giants back in 2002, when at that time I was a scout for the Anaheim Angels, and he's one of the starting five for the Giants. So that was a kind of a surreal moment to be in Angel Stadium, taking pictures with one of my former players out of a program that was not expected to do those things. So when I recruited him, I had some players on my team from Snow College where he went and they told me about Ryan Jensen and they said, have you seen Ryan Jensen? And I says, no, who's that? Now today we'd all know who Ryan Jensen is through social media and everything else. But back then it was just tips and you had to act on those tips and you had to take a 50, 50 gamble that if you went to the game, he was either stink or he was going to be a surprise. Right. And so I head up to E from Utah, uh, gave the team a day off talked with the coach and said, hey, look, if you're in a position to win in the seventh inning, take him out of right field, put him on the mound. I don't know when I'm going to get back here to see him. And he did. Funny thing is that coach at Snow College had been my coach for two high school all-star games when I was a player. So All these little ties in my life kind of intertwine. And it's the seventh inning. I'm freezing. It's about 25 degrees. There's snow flurries coming down. And I had a guy across the street earlier in the game said, are you Coach Schultz from Southern Utah? And I said, yeah. And he goes, you look like you're cold. And he goes and gets a snowmobile jumpsuit, brings it to me, and I zip up the snowmobile suit, look kind of corny, standing behind the backstop. I'm the only recruiter or scout at this game. Seventh inning, unzip it, give it back to him, start heading for the parking lot. There's one out in the seventh, and the coach comes out to bring Ryan Jensen in from right field. He comes in, I grab my radar gun, and he was 91 to 95. And that was a surreal moment. Nobody knew who this kid was. And I had just walked into a gold mine. Called him that night, offered him a scholarship. He said I was the only school that had talked to him. I was still trying to figure this out in my mind, how this could be. We signed him. He came in for one year was drafted, left, played professional baseball, got to the big leagues. But that was a moment where I was able to have 20 to 25 scouts at all my games, got to know the scouts, got intimate with a lot of them as far as talk to them weekly, talk to them daily. But then I had another player my last year in 97. He was a walk-on from Skyline High School, and his name was Phil Downing. 
and Phil was a 4.0 student, had an academic scholarship to Southern Utah, and he calls me, and he says, hey, I'm coming to Southern Utah, I just want to let you know that I'm going to come out and walk on to the team, and so, no internet, you know, there's no internet, I don't have a computer, <laughs> anything I wanted done administratively, I had to go to the secretary and have her do everything for me, look through some newspapers, try to find out about what I can about Phil Downing. I found out he was a first-team All-State center fielder, and he had nobody talking to him. Mm. So that week, he comes out, hits two or three home runs and tryouts, and I'm going, this kid is better than most of the kids I recruited put on money. So he makes the team. He comes out, and about 10, 15 games into the season, I'm playing kind of part-time. He's hitting 100, mm. and he's stressing. He's worried about keeping his spot, and I decided to put his mind at ease. And I did for him and paid it forward like my coach did when I was a freshman in high school. Right. And so I called him over to my place and I said, he was nervous and he's getting called over to the coach's place. And I says, uh, you can either look at your batting average on the scoreboard and it can say 100 or it can say 300. It's up to you. You're going to hit in the two-hole, play center field, and I'm not taking you out of, the or, out of the lineup the rest of the year. He went on to shatter most of the hitting records over hit the next two or three years at Southern Utah. Uh, when I left the program, he transferred to Arizona State and played four or five years for the Montreal Expos. Those were situations where sometimes when a player doesn't have all the confidence in themselves, it takes somebody to instill that confidence reassure them that no matter if they have failures they're basically not going to be counted we're going to keep running you out there every single day and it's up to you to make the adjustments and figure it out and so i kept telling him you go to bed at night i want you to visualize you're hitting 300 what do you need to do to do that and so i instilled in him the same thing paid it forward and said if you hit two hard balls a game it will take care of itself and over time it did and so that was, those were some things that I guess helped me as a college coach because others helped me when I was younger. And it was all about visualization, reassurance, you know, showing confidence, instilling confidence in others. And I think one of the things that I'd always learned about coaching was to me, there's so many broad terms for coaching, but I just looked at it very finite. It was just coaching is the ability to take others to higher levels than they can take themselves normally. And so that's why this game is so mental. It's all about belief systems. It's all about visualization. It's all about self-talk. It's believing in yourself. Sometimes if somebody else doesn't believe it, somebody out there will believe in you, but you can't say, ah, oh, you know, that's nice coach, but you know, I'm not that good. I don't know why you think I'm that good. When somebody gives you a lifeline and shows you confidence, do everything you can to prove them right, you know? But that, that right there was it for the college bug. And then uh, I had one of the more unique ways of getting into professional baseball as a scout, probably than most. We all come from different backgrounds and have different stories of how we were hired. And I think this is one reason why people want me to write books. I've been pestered forever. Maybe this is the best time to do it is during the coronavirus. You should be a few chapters in already. I don't know what you're waiting for. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Giving away the punchline. 
but I had, when I finished coaching in college, I'd kind of run the gamut with that. You know, we didn't win a lot and I didn't see myself continuing that situation for much longer. I wanted to get back into professional baseball. I had some overtures, things didn't happen right away. But when I resigned from Southern Utah, I didn't have a place to go to job-wise, which is sometimes not the smartest thing to do. But I found a job through a former BYU pitcher who had pitched in, in the College World Series, the only time BYU had played in the College World Series in the early 70s. And he ran a troubled youth home in Southern Utah. Had hundreds and hundreds of, of troubled youth girls. So I started out counseling and moving up to a shift leader and one of the higher ups in this troubled youth program. And I was using a lot of the mental skills that I had learned as a kid growing up being a ball player and a coach and now helping kids who basically had zero confidence were, you know, at their wits end, they were bottom barrel and how to turn these kids lives around. Well, it was my, I was going into my third year working in that program and they asked me to help start a boys program. So I helped them replicate a boys version of it and they started bringing in young kids from all over the country. They had a program that had shut down in Samoa and they were bringing these kids to Southern Utah because they were 18 years old but they weren't ready to go home but they couldn't keep them past their 18th birthday in Samoa. So they brought them to Southern Utah and I was to teach them life skills and be a mentor basically to help transition these kids into everyday society. One young man from the East Coast from Maryland had been in three or four of their satellite programs and he hadn't really turned the corner and I took him under my wing and he took a liking to me kind of a he looked up to me and wherever i went he wanted to tag along <laughs> if i went to the grocery store to get groceries for the program he would go with me and i could see that he was thirsting for someone to instill confidence in him and i watched him out the corner of my eye he was watching kind of everything i was doing mimicking some of my behaviors and he was really making a lot of progress well one night he breaks curfew and comes into my office. And I told him, I says, what are you doing? You need to get back to bed. And he says, I really need to talk to you. And he said, you know, I was watching you during one of our life skills presentations. And he says, you really, you really need to get back into baseball. And he said, this has been great for you. This is an 18 year old troubled kid. He says, this has been great for you but this is not where you belong. And he says, this is where you belong at the moment. And I couldn't believe the wisdom that here was this 18 year old kid who was bounced all over the world in these programs. And he says, what if I was to tell you I had a way for that to happen? And I said, are you serious? There's no way. Come on. He says, do you know who my granddad is? And I said, no. He says, my granddad is Kyle Rote senior who played seven, eight, nine years for the New York football giants in the fifties and was a legend. He was a Heisman trophy winner at SMU. Well, I knew the grandpa's name, 
but I knew more importantly who the grandpa's son was. Kyle Rote Jr. was the greatest North American soccer star in the 70s next to Pele. Wow. And Kyle Rote Jr. used to do absorbing junior commercials by Kyle Rote Jr. <laughs> and I'd watch those when I was a kid. And so he said, my grandpa is very, very close friends with George Steinbrenner. And he says, I think my grandpa could get to George Steinbrenner. I took it with a grain of salt mm. and didn't want to pursue it and look like I was using this lead. But about a month later, after this encounter, his parents came for a campus visit because he had made enough progress to have his parents come visit. And his dad kind of was asking me certain questions and his dad was a really quiet guy. And then at the very end, he asked me if I had a resume. And I said, yeah, and, well, of course I had one out in my car. I was always waiting for professional baseball to happen at any moment. Right. So I asked the young man, I says, why'd your dad want my resume? And he says, he's going to take it to my grandpa and get it to George Steinbrenner. So one thing led to a next. I had started to pursue working on a postgraduate degree. I was doing school plus working the program. And then back then we had pagers and not cell phones all the time on us. <laughs> and I had my pager. You're really dangerous stuff right now. Yes. And I had my pager go off. I excused myself from this classroom, went out to a pay phone and pulled up the message. And it was gruff, 80-something-year-old Kyle Rose Sr. telling me that uh, he needed me to call him, that he had been in touch with George. One thing led to a next, and I get a phone call from the New York Yankees. The New York Yankees told me that they did not have any jobs, that they hadn't had any turnover in quite a while and didn't anticipate any. But they told me a secret, and they said, our national cross-checker, is the leading candidate for the Open Anaheim Angels scouting director position. And we would put a word in for you because anybody that Kyle Rote Sr. would recommend to George Steinbrenner would go to the top of the list. So one thing led to the next. This guy did get the scouting director job for the Angels. I was offered a job with the Angels. That was a very unique way of getting back into professional baseball was a troubled 18-year-old kid <laughs> whose grandfather happened to know George Steinbrenner. But those were just, I guess, the old thing of luck finds they're prepared. I'd always been enjoying the process, working the process, getting good at the process, enjoying the process, and then the results sometimes just happened to stumble upon me. And, and I think sometimes young players – need to recognize when an opportunity presents itself to be able to have, if they've worked the process to be able to see it for what it is, that this might be the bone that you have to be thrown and to not turn it down, take advantage of it because this is the result of your hard work. Maybe not your batting average, but maybe the opportunity to further yourself down the road and move up in the game and move to the next level because there's a lot of people out there willing to hand you lifelines. That's awesome, man. That's so now what year is this the, as far as scouting for you, what, how many years have you been scouting now? This is my 20th year. Um, I was out one year between the angels and the brewers in a regime change. 
And I was the last guy turned over in the area. <laughs> so there, there wasn't any jobs. Uh, I went back to school to pursue postgraduate stuff, just be a father, kind of do what we're doing now. Coached Little League Baseball with my son when he was like six, seven years old. Enjoyed that. And then the Brewers came calling a year later and had an opening in the four corners and I got back into the game. So this is my 20th, 20th year of professional baseball as a scout. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And that's, I don't know if I've ever thank you personally, but I, I thank you personally for getting let go so I could become a scout. I, know. I always <laughs> think about that. <laughs> so Jeff was the, uh, the area scout for the angels for quite a while. And then with the regime change came over the brewers and I, my story was I happened to fall in line with living in Vegas to become an angel scout. And now I'm in my eighth year there. So it's been kind of a, a cool little relationship that we built over yeah. the last few years. Yeah. So what I think of you too, in regards back to when you were an angel scout, you, you were able to draft some pretty successful players. One that stands out to me and one I think is makes sense for what I'm trying to accomplish and do here is you were the scout that drafted Brandon Wood right. out, of, out of Horizon High School in Scottsdale, Arizona. So if you're an Angels fan, you're going to know exactly who Brandon Wood was. You kind of pointed out, you're like, you and Brandon kind of share the exact same story. And I was fortunate enough to, my last year playing, it was roughly around 2008, I think it was. I was in spring training with the Angels. Uh, got to meet Brandon Wood. I don't know him well by any means. Uh, hopefully I get him on the, the channel one day. Yeah, uh, walk us through the process of scouting Brandon Wood, going through the minor leagues with him, his major league experience, and kind of what we know now, what Brandon went through that m many people don't know about. Brandon, story is pretty, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I'm jumping to, you know, far ahead of myself here and kind of divulging some of the things that Brandon went through, but he, he's made it a point and it's, it's all the credit to Brandon. Brandon is an outstanding young man, great family. One of the, you know, my favorite players that I've ever scouted. He was my first major leaguer. It was kind of surreal because I was in my third year with the Angels when we won the 02 World Series and was able to get a World Series ring. Yeah. Very next year, Brandon Wood comes along and I get a first round pick. And I remember telling my dad, I says, you know, now I've got a World Series ring. I've got a first round draft pick goodness what else what else is there for me to do I says I'm too young to retire but I could retire on that <laughs> right now Brandon was Brandon was a lot of fun he was somebody who was not ranked in the top 100 players in the country or top 200 players in the country going into the season he had a strong commitment to the University of Texas a lot of a lot of scouts at that time felt like he was like a third or fourth round kind of player and that was going into the season and he did everything to earn being a first round pick. He was a surefire first round pick, but he didn't, he wasn't a surefire first round pick going into the season. So he, we had a plan. The angels had a plan that basically spearheaded off a workout that I had done with Brandon right before the season at horizon high school. I brought my supervisor in with a national cross checker and we threw batting practice to Brandon. And wherever we told Brandon to hit the ball, he hit it like he was playing horse. We'd say, hit it out to right center. He'd hit it out to right center. We'd say, hit it over that light pole. He'd hit it over that light pole. He was doing the things that Joey Votto talks about, that the elite players can do anything on command. Right. We could not believe that. I mean, he was six foot 
three, 165 pounds. And he was like an Eric Davis that he could just launch balls for a kid that was skinny. Right. He'd always been known as a defensive player first. And then his hitting just really just took off his senior year. He hit 20, I want to say 23 home runs and led the country in home runs as a high school senior. We had a plan that we were going to get all the supervisors in early and without me seeing him and not let the other scouts see Jeff Schultz into the ballpark. So I was not allowed to see him play until all the supervisors, cross-checker, scouting director had gone through and seen him at least once. Hmm. So I was in Tucson watching the University of Arizona, watching Brian Anderson, a first-round pick that year, outfielder. And I had my family with me, and we were at the Tucson Zoo, and I get a phone call from my scouting director, and he says, hey, uh, does Brandon would play tonight? And I thought that meant he was going in to see him. And he says, uh, hey, I'm just letting you know we're done. We've seen Brandon all we need to see him. But you're free to sit on him now. But what we want you to do from here on out is we want you to watch every high school game that he plays for the rest of the season. and Which is pretty rare. Right? Which is rare. Watch every game. Yes. <laughs> and so I had to give up a lot of senior signs on my draft list, other players. But wherever Brandon Wood was playing around the Valley, I had to be there. And so I ended up seeing, I want to say, 13 or 14 of his home runs out of 23 home runs. And I would get phone calls, and they'd say, how'd Brandon do tonight? And I'd say, he had a home run to right center. He had a home run across Greenway Road. <laughs> and then they'd call me two days later, say, how'd he do? And I'd say, he hit two more balls over Greenway Road. And it was just kind of the theme. He was dominating. And he was, he was garnering headlines. He was moving up in the rankings. It started to look like that he was going to be a first-round pick. So we had gained a close enough relationship with his family that I knew who was on him. I knew who might pick him, who were the only teams that might take him in the first round. And to my knowledge at the time, it looked like it was us or the Diamondbacks. Diamondbacks had two picks that sandwiched our pick at 23. No way. They had 19 and 29. <laughs> and somehow it got leaked to the Arizona Republic that they were thinking about taking a high school player and a college player with those two picks. They didn't know in what order. So I knew if it was high school, college, in that order, they were going to take Brandon Wood at 19 and we wouldn't get him at 23. It ended up flipping around. They took a, a college player at 19 and we knew that we were four picks away. No one was going to take Brandon. And our draft room actually exploded four picks before. We knew we had our guy. Okay. And my internet went out. And so I was rushing to my dad's business to see if his internet was working. And it took me 30 minutes to get the internet. So I figured we were in the second or third round by now. And I hadn't heard anything. And I was like, I lost Brandon Wood. So all of a sudden I get a phone call from the draft room and one of the area scouts calls me and says, congratulations on Woody. And I said, we got Brandon? And he says, yeah, we got Brandon. And I said, oh my gosh, where? Because I knew his signability and I knew it was going to take first round. And I was panicking thinking they just wasted a pick and he wasn't going to sign. And they says, come on. You got him in the first round. And I was excited, as you can imagine, getting a first-round pick. 
And then Brandon just kind of went off for four or five years and just completely destroyed the minor leagues. He had 161 home runs over a five-year period, reached the big leagues when he was 22 years old, which would have been his senior year at the University of Texas. He was the number one prospect in baseball a few times. He was our number one prospect three consecutive years in a row. Um, it was fun to go to ballparks and everybody kind of look at you and say, hey, that's the guy that signed Brandon Wood. And so we were kind of tied together. And I talked to his dad probably every two weeks for years. Um, I talked to Brandon maybe once every couple months. But uh, we had a close enough relationship that I was almost like a big brother to him. And once he got to the big leagues, that was his first encounter with failure. He'd had a lot of success. He was minor league player of the year for all of baseball by Baseball America. Um, but when he got to the big leagues, he started to struggle. And we all thought that it was mechanical. We thought it was the inability to hit the slider. He'd have his eyes checked, trying to figure out if, why was it that he could hit a slider in the minor leagues 450 feet, but couldn't hit the same slider in the big leagues. This went on for four or five years until his career kind of derailed. But then he went into becoming a minor league manager for the San Diego Padres. And then it came out, he wrote a Sports Illustrated article, Tom Berducci. And it was very enlightening. It was very bold of him. It was a very something that was a mentoring kind of thing to not only help himself tackle this and help others, and it's why he wanted to go into coaching, is the pitfalls of being a top prospect and the pitfalls of the anxiety, the stress, the pressure, trying to live up to everybody else's expectations. And so Brandon didn't really take a, gain a foothold in the big leagues because of his ability, which was far superior than most players in the big leagues. His tools were off the chart, but he went through anxiety and he went through stress and it was heightened anxiety. But Brandon has been able to help lots of people, lots of kids, minor leaguers to be able to avoid those pitfalls. And I think those are sometimes the best teachers to be able to, you know, as yourself and others and um, who are top prospects to be able to help kids navigate those troubled waters. And, and that was kind of Brandon Wood. And, but he's still my first big leaguer. I have stories when I look at his uniform on my wall, he's gone on to a successful life. He runs a, a DBAT facility in Billings, Montana, has the only indoor facility in the state of Montana. He's expecting their second child. He has a great life. He has a great life and he's, be, he's able to continue his baseball passion and help others and help young men tackle all the mental challenges that come with such a hard sport to play. Yeah, no doubt. And I, I remember he was, he was kind of coming up in, in a certain period when I was kind of in a downslide of my personal career and the Myers kind of got out of baseball and then came back a little bit. But you kept hearing this name, Brandon Wood. Like, this kid's hit, this dude hit 40 homers in the minor leagues in a year. Like, well, yeah. that's pretty rare, right? So, but yeah, we, I'd love to get Brandon on one day and, and maybe you could help me do that to share yeah. his story. Because I do think it's important that there, there's a lot of kids, and that we're not just talking about high draft picks. We're talking about kids that, that they go through their expectations and they're so worried about what other people think. Right. You know, and, and they, instead of just really focusing again back to that process of, 
what do I just have to do to get ready and prepared every day? You know, rather than worried about what my coach thinks, my manager thinks, all the fans, it's so easy to get lost in and you just kind of lose yourself, you know, yeah. really. So it's, and I see that with the high school kids now that say they are a draft prospect or even, even in that same mode of trying to get a scholarship to a college. They're so concerned and worried about what people think. Right. Yeah. It's, you have kids, we see it all the time on social media where you have people post, you know, don't sign at a college. Don't expect to go to a college to feed your ego, you know, go to a college that is the best fit for you. It's all about fit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's about what makes you comfortable, what gives you the best chance to have success, the people that are around you, the support system that you're going to have there in place, the kinds of players that go to those programs. That's, that's what's important. When we get caught up in, you know, the ego of, of signing at a certain school because it's got a lot of flash and shine to it and they've got the best gear and all that kind of stuff. You know, more often than not, 70, 80% of the time, those, those players end up being somewhere else. Right. It, it's not the fit. It, it's kind of the old thing of you can make a lot of money, but that money gets left behind when we die. You know, it, it, you can have all this gear, you can have all this shine and all this flash, but in the end, that's not really what's important. It's about surrounding yourself with good people, people who instill confidence in you and that support system, that belief system, people that can take you to levels higher than you can take yourself. And anybody can go, I wouldn't say anybody can play professional baseball, but your chances of playing professional baseball are a lot more realistic when you're in a situation to allow your ability to come out that allows you a comfort zone, your safe space mentally to allow your physical abilities to manifest themselves. No doubt. So man, it's been a, this has been a great conversation so far. We're going to dive into something now that maybe has nothing to do with baseball. And this this has something to do more, more with life. And I want to bring that to this channel in regards to a things happen in life that we, a lot of times that we can't control. A A lot of things happen. Jeff had something happen to him personally where I, I think I was just a couple years into my scouting career and he lost his wife. Um, she passed away. And I want Jeff to share that story, how this happened. How do you, how do you get through something like that? I mean, it's the worst possible thing that could happen is losing someone so close to you like this. So, so Jeff, let's dive into that. And I'm going to let you take the rain here and, and just okay. share the story and hopefully I don't cry. Yeah. Um, I, um, you know, my life was, um, at that point, my, it was 2014 Christmas time about 2014. My life was a good life. Um, I had a great career, had a great job with the angels. I mean, with the brewers, my wife wanted to go in and have an elective surgery. Like most mothers that have had, you know, three, four children and they want to get back to their youthful self. And so she had an elective surgery. Things went wrong. And she uh, came home after that surgery and two and a half days later stopped breathing in our house. And it got to a point where um, she never regained consciousness. Six days later, after we'd been life flighted to Salt Lake City, she passed away. And she was 39 years old. 
I was 45 at the time. We had four children from 17 to nine years old. And if you would have told me the day of that surgery that 13 days later we were going to be holding a funeral, I think, you know, I, I would say absolutely no way. Kind of like what we're going through right now. You know, if you'd have told us that a pandemic was going to completely change our lives, I would have said, no way. That's just stuff you see on, you know, documentaries on TV and yeah. you know, movies and motion pictures. But uh, she passed away. You know, reality, you're kind of trapped in an, you were in a nightmare. It was an out-of-body experience. And you're not only grieving for yourself, but you've got to have, you've got to worry about four children. How are you able to worry about your children and what their needs are when you don't even know what to do for yourself? And, you know, you go from a loud, rambunctious house to, you know, it's a, it was just, it was a ghost house. There was no activity. You know, everybody was grieving. You, you had all this support from neighbors and church members and the baseball world. And, and you're living an out-of-body experience when you're attending a funeral with over 1500 people that are packing a church and you can't believe it's happening. Is this really happening to me? Once we got into all the dinners were over with everybody coming to the house, then all of a sudden you're kind of left to yourself and you're basically in your head all day long, 24 hours a day. But on top of it, it's, oh my gosh, I got four children to worry about. I've got to be mom and dad, but I also have a scouting career. Yeah. And our scouting career is not eight to five, like, like the everyday you know, worker. How, how am I going to leave this cul-de-sac and how am I going to be in you know, hotel rooms for four, five, seven days at a time and have my children's needs met? And so I thought my scouting career was basically over. You know, I was reassured by, by my uh, front office people that uh, they'd work hard with me to get through it, that uh, I would have a job, that I could go out at my leisure. But I was still one that I was a competitor. You know, I was a ball player. And I didn't feel like being home. I felt like I needed to be somewhere. And I needed to be at the ballpark. And I needed to be around my friends. And I'll admit there was five or six times where I turned the car around. I'd get a hundred miles away from home and call and say, I can't do this today. And I would go home. But I was very grateful that I had an organization and support system of friends in the baseball world, my family that helped me get through that. But you know, the old thing is, is sometimes you don't know how tough you are or how strong you are until you have to be. And you get to a position where you go, I got to be the example here, even though I don't want to be the example. It's, I, I look at it like being, having the franchise tag put on you. I don't want to be the franchise, you know, but somebody says, that's what you're going to have to do. And you, you got to do it. It's like going out and mowing a lawn. You don't want to mow a lawn, but you better do it. Or you're going to have the TV taken away, <laughs> you know? So I, I plowed through it and I don't remember any of the players that I scouted that year. I do not remember my draft list. It was all a haze. I just do remember being in the ballpark and being around my friends and, and feeling like I needed to be around people. So I powered through it. And I look back on how I got through that. And I think a lot of it has to do with being a competitor, being a ball player. 
and those things that I grew up with that taught me how to be mentally tough and how to persevere and how to plow through and how to grind that today is tough tomorrow will probably be tough too but a week from now i might look back on it see it differently a month from now it's the old thing that you know it gets better with time you don't ever get over it you get through it and so i guess you know coach littlewood at byu was an integral part of that time with me you know he one time he did a talk with his you know BYU team out on the road what we call you know firesides in the Mormon church and he uh, he asked me if he could talk about that and overcoming trials and tell my story and at the same time I didn't feel like I was somebody to look to or look up to or use me as an example I just knew I had to do what I had to do. It was me and my grief and everything coming at me like, you know, snow on a windshield when you have the, the brights on your lights, you know, your car. It's just coming at you so fast that all you're, you're doing is you're just trying to survive. And I, and I looked at it as when you step in a batter's box and you have a 90 plus mile an hour fastball coming at you, let's admit sometimes you're just trying to survive (laughs) and you're going to have days where you have good games and there's days you're going to have bad games. You're just trying to plow through the the times that you're not doing well. And that's kind of what I did. I knew I would get on with my life, but I didn't know what my life would ultimately become. I felt like that it would change in ways that sometimes I didn't know if I wanted it to change. And, you know, you want to go back to that, but I was very blessed that, you know, I met someone that uh, had been through it herself and, and was Heidi's age and um, had been through what I'd been through. We met, got married, and now I'm back to kind of a different normal, a different a second chapter of my life that I'm very happy. I'm very content. I look back with fond memories and happy memories, and, and I have that time in my life locked away in my my mind and my heart, but I don't revisit it too much. Every now and then I do, but I love my life now and my wife. And I look at it as what I went through, you can almost correlate to baseball. You know, as Trevor Amicone said yesterday, it's life basically imitates, you know, baseball and vice versa. Those were some tragedies and trials that you could almost equate with Oh my gosh, going over a hundred. I would rather go over a hundred than have that trial, but it will pass. It's not going to last forever. But when you're in the moment, it doesn't feel like it's going to pass. And you feel like you're going to be this way forever. And I think that's something that I've been able to hopefully instill in my son and my daughters that no matter if my son goes over four or has a bad game, hey, it's not the end of the world. You've been through a lot tougher. You were nine years old when you lost your mother. Mm-hmm. So I think we all have a story in life that can help others, but that was one that was a pretty tough go through. I wouldn't ever want to go through it again. And, you know, whatever your feelings are for certain individuals in your life, whether you're not a big fan of certain people, I wouldn't wish this on them. 
it's something that I even look back and think, how in the world did I get through it? But it takes an army to raise your kids. It takes a support system. It takes friends. It's like being a team, you know, together, everyone accomplishes more, you know, that's TEA, that's team. (laughs) And you need others to pick you up to have individual success. And for me to have success and come through that, I would say with flying colors is I had a big support system and not everybody has that. But I think whenever a coach or somebody gives you a lifeline and shows you confidence, believes in you, take it, don't push it away, take it for what it is. It's an olive branch. It's a lifeline run with it. But that's what I, that's what I learned going through that, uh, that trial. And there's days that it feels like it was yesterday. There's days that it feels like it was a long, long time ago. But, you know, you still have your setbacks throughout the year. You have anniversaries, you have birthdays, you have memories that bring back, you know, painful memories. But, you know, it's, it's, it's just like going up against a pitcher and you're facing somebody that you're one for 30 against. Right. Oh, you remember the last time you went 0 for 4 or 4 <laughs> strikeouts against that guy. Right. But that was then. Today is a different day. And today doesn't have to mimic years ago you can change the script but it is all based on how you visualize how you see it mentally and that's why this game's a mental game you know yeah no doubt i I appreciate sharing that story because i know there's there can be a lot of people that relate to that and because we're all going to lose everyone we know at some point right with the way death works and that's unfortunate with life but but man we, we power through it we have our support system being being able to talk it out right and i know you you talked about i think it was you and wally richie wally would come over and just play pool with you just to hang out and and just to be there for you just uh you know sometimes sometimes nothing even needs to be said you're just you're just there for each other hanging out and but yeah man i appreciate sharing that story with us awesome Um, well jeff man i appreciate your time here and man there's a lot of lot of nuggets in there you know a lot of being able to visualize one thing that stood out to me was how you didn't let that teacher back back when you were young who said, hey, you, you did this wrong. Come, I need you to come back and do this again. Right. A, a ton of us tend to do that. They're like, oh, is that guy right? Is this teacher? Is this coach right? But yeah. no, you still had that belief in yourself that I don't care what this person says. I'm going to still go out. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to imagine it. And then I'm just going to go make it happen. Yeah. 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 Well, cool, man. Hey, thanks for your time. Uh, hopefully we get some baseball this summer or else it's going to be a real rough, <laughs> rough go. I know. I know. <laughs> It'd be better to see in person at the ballpark than through Zoom. So yeah, that's right. All right, man. Well, we're going to sign off. I appreciate yeah. your time and uh, we'll see you in a, hopefully soon. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks, Chad. Thanks, man. We'll see you. Right. Okay. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jeff Scholes and Jeff's such a, a dear friend of mine and man, being able to share a story of, of the passion and perseverance that he's had in his life. Hopefully you got something out of that and can help you in your life as well. So if you need any personal help, you feel like you need a, a little bit more of uh, some guidance, personal coaching, go over to mentaledge.training where you'll see my online course where I can help you personally uh, go through your life, go through your training, go through helping coach you uh, through what you're going to go through as well. Thanks for watching and we'll see you in the next episode.